wanted to say thank you so much to each one of you who just ran things so seamlessly while I was gone. Uh, I mean, I think that the mark of an amazing leadership team is when you can disappear and no one even notices that you were away. And I think most of you only knew I was gone because of Instagram. So thank you to each one of you that just poured into to this group in this time. Can we just give some love to the people that made it happen for the last couple weeks? So tonight we're carrying on with our sermon series called Check Your Heart, and tonight is all about family. And I just want to start off by saying that being a parent is hard. It's, in fact, it's the hardest quest I've ever ventured on, hands down, bar none, easily. It's the most difficult. It, ha- it has hills that seem completely insurmountable. It has valleys that are wildly deep. Uh, And I'm constantly reminded of my shortcomings. I'm constantly reminded of how selfish I am. Being a parent is the single greatest look into the mirror of my true self that I've ever experienced. It has shown me just how strong and how weak I can be at the same time. It's shown me how peaceful and how chaotic my life can be in the span of 20 minutes the 10 minutes before bedtime and the 10 minutes after. It's a continual reminder of the weight that has been placed on my shoulders as a father and a husband to raise children who have every opportunity to know and to choose Jesus. And then, on top of all of that, to become contributing members of society who can read and pee on the potty and it's just it's a struggle. It's never ending. And I know that most of you in this room aren't parents. I know that. Some of you are parents. Some of you are soon to be parents. But I know that most of you aren't. But I do know that all of you are a part of a family somehow, in some way. And let's be honest. Families are these weird mixtures of people that you don't get to choose and situations that you're either born into or brought into that you have no control over. It's, catch this, family is essentially the most random reality that you'll ever encounter, yet it feels so completely natural. Think about it for a second. Some of your greatest achievements will be because of your family, either in a positive or a negative way, as well as your deepest struggles. It's the foundation of so much of our lives, yet we have so little control over it. I mean, have you ever just stepped back and looked into your family and thought, these people are weird? No? I do that all the time. But you know, I've also had the wonderful privilege of stepping back and looking at my family and thinking how deeply grateful I am for each one of them and the effect that they've had on my life. But one of the things that we know about family is that they've changed drastically over the last number of decades. In fact, one of the most drastic changes we've seen has been in the last two decades in particular. In what some social scientists scientists dub the decoupling of marriage and childbearing. And what that means in regular people words is that people are making babies outside of marriage. 
And interestingly, in 1950, actually only 4% of all the babies born in North America were born outside of wedlock, outside of marriage. Only 4%. By 1990, that number was 28%. And by 2016, that number in North America showed that 40% of children are born outside of marriage. And what I found interesting was that as you look into the data a little bit more, you find that actually 59%, the number rises to 59% of children are born outside of marriage if the mother only has a high school diploma or equivalent. And what's fascinating about this is that there has been in-depth research done into the well-being of women and men and children over the effects of being born outside of marriage. And what they find is, is this remarkable decline in the social and psychological well-being of particularly women who have children outside of marriage. That number is very, is very similar with men and also very similar with children, but it's, it's more remarkable for women. And so the question is, is why does this all matter? Why am I even bringing this up? Well, I believe that the nuclear family, like what we have, the, this, the, the family unit that's ever-changing we see two extremes. We have this blueprint for two extremes uh, of, of really good and really bad. And on the one hand, we have the positive effect of role models who pour themselves into raising children, into passing along their faith and passing along their knowledge, which make children who are poised to succeed throughout their lives in a multitude of different schemas. But on the other hand, we witness this devastating consequence of mismanaged family units and the damage that, that, that the family can have on a child. And what I want to say is I'm not here tonight to blame your family for, for the things that have happened to you. I'm also not here to blame your family for all the decisions that you've made or that I have made. However, I believe that the family can actually teach us something about faith that we can all access even though we, most of us, most of you don't have children but most of you are part of a family. And here it is. Families should be the clearest picture of discipleship. Families should be the model of discipleship for us. It's that plain and simple. Parents should both model and practice discipleship in everything they do. When, when we think about what discipleship means, we should be able to point to parents and kids and families and say, there it is. There is discipleship in action. Unfortunately, most of the time we look at families and that's not what we see. You see, God's intention is for man and for woman to be married and to have children. We read it right in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2, 24, describes it as this one flesh relationship as man leaves his mother and father to be made one, one flesh with his wife. And then they're told to be fruitful and multiply. And I want to say tonight that when we begin to change the biblical understanding of family and we call that changed thing good, we actually undermine God's intention for humankind. And, and let me be abundantly clear right now. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying that single moms and single dads can't raise children well. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I know that there's a number of people in this room tonight that come as a product of a single mom or a single dad or aunties or uncles or grandmas and grandpas or friends or some other mixture of people 
Or maybe you had really no family and you had to fend for yourself. And look at you. You're sitting here tonight and you're doing all right. And so I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that it can't happen. But what I am saying is that we should not think that those things and those ways are better than God's intention for family. I said it a few weeks ago. I believe strongly that marriage is good for kids. I don't mean for them to get married. I mean for them to exist in a family where a marriage is rich and beautiful and abundant. You see, when a husband and wife leave their families, begin a new life together, and then pour into their children together in the context of a marriage, amazing things can happen. For good or for bad, we have to stop making the exception from the rule. There are exceptions when amazing people come from less than ideal circumstances. You might be one of those people. You might know a lot of those people. But we can't expect that to be the fact for everybody, and we know that it's not. We know that it's not. The reality is, is that the Bible says the family unit should be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That is where a family should begin. But it's not just the Bible. Like I said, there's research. And I mean, just a minute ago, we looked at just a a small snapshot of the remarkable decline of psychological and social well-being in families that are not in the typical context of a husband and wife having children together in marriage. And I have textbooks on my shelf and at home that are filled with more research like this. The internet's full of it. So we have to stop believing and catch this, that just because the world accepts every variation of family as equal, that we should too. We have to stop believing that. And let me be very clear, because I want to be careful what I say tonight. Just because we don't accept them as as equal to God's intention... That does not mean that we don't have the call on our lives that we must be loving and understanding of people's situations. That they're not ideal. We don't live in an ideal world. You don't live in an ideal world. You know that. But it's our responsibility as the church to gather around people who haven't been blessed with the ideal and fill in wherever possible. That's our call. That's our call as men and women of faith. Where there is no father, let us provide positive male role models. Where there is no mother, let us pour out maternal love whenever possible. Where there is no financial stability, let us open our wallets and be generous. Where there is no home, let us open our doors and welcome people in. Where there is no love, let us lavish it upon them, our brothers and sisters, as if we are Christ ourselves. And where there is no hope, let us speak the gospel truth over people's lives in each situation. Because in John 13, 34, Jesus teaches us this. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, so you must love one another. And so you see, we're commanded to love. And we're told exactly what that is just a little bit later in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 13 and perhaps one of the most overquoted wedding scriptures of all time where Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then the beginning of verse 8 says, love never fails. But I want you to see what's on either side of that scripture. Because I think that we get a better context. Because Paul actually begins 1 Corinthians 13 like this. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, catch this, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain what? Nothing. And then he goes on to explain what love is. But then we get to the middle of verse 8, and Paul picks up again, and he says this. He says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And you see, most pastors preach a message of love. And they preach the message that love is the answer. And it, and it is. Don't get me wrong. It is the answer. But catch this, friends. Love without action is useless. It's meaningless. It's like a fire department that doesn't actually put out fires. It's like a police force that doesn't actually respond to crime. It's like doctors and nurses that don't actually help patients. It's like a church who doesn't surround the broken and disenfranchised with real Christ-like love that actually makes a difference in their lives. And let me be perfectly clear that doesn't just mean the poor and the powerless out there in the streets. We have this out there mentality. It actually means the very people that found their ways through those doors tonight and sat down right beside you. We must become love in action because love without action is meaningless. And Paul would say that love without action leaves us actually with nothing. Paul would argue that when we love without action and when we love without the, the, the quality and the beautiful nature of Christ behind it, that we are actually left with less than when we began. We would be better off to not have even tried. And it's like mothers and it's like fathers who don't intentionally pour into their children. You see, somebody asked me one time, their marriage was on the rocks, and they asked me, they said, Luke, should we just stay together for our kids? I said, absolutely you should. You made a commitment. You brought a child into this world with a promise that you would be there. And so you need to get over yourself, and you need to put that child first. Because Paul says here that when he was a child, he talked like a child. He thought like a child. He reasoned like a child. But when he became a man, he put, oh, he put the ways of childhood behind him. 
And he began to see what we will one day see. The fullness, the completeness, the amazing reality of Christ and God in the flesh, in the presence completely surrounding us. But Paul said that he begins to see it a little more each day. And that's what the family must become. That's what as the church we need to set the ideal and the standard for the family to be a lot higher than the world around us says it is. A place where children are given the opportunity to see the completeness of Christ a little more clearly every single day. And I want to be completely honest and transparent with you tonight. I am by no means a perfect parent. I went to sleep a couple of nights ago with tears in my eyes because I was harsh to my little girl. I was tired, I was frustrated, I was jet-lagged, and I wasn't as kind and loving as I could have been. But I can also stand up here tonight with confidence and say that I desire more than anything else for my children to know God intimately and personally. And this is the core of what, of what we're talking about tonight. And we find it in Matthew. The end, the end of the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Arguably one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am surely with you always to the very end of the age. And tonight I want to challenge us because we tend to view that scripture with this macro lens. This all-encompassing wide shot of the whole world. The whole earth. You know, all people. All nations. But I want to suggest tonight that maybe before we start looking towards all nations, that we need to look at our nation. And actually, let me press in a little bit more and actually suggest that maybe we should trade in that macro lens for a micro one. One that allows us to focus in and get real specific about what God instructs us to do. And let me say it this way. As a parent, if I'm not making disciples in my own home, I'm failing as a disciple maker. Let me say it this way. I am not just raising children. I'm raising fellow sisters in Christ. It was that realization that opened my eyes when I became a dad. Because let me just say, if you ever have the incredible privilege of being a parent, maybe it's naturally, or maybe it's by some other means, you need to hear that you aren't just raising children. You are raising a fellow brother or sister in Christ. You are raising somebody where one day I will stand in the full knowledge of the presence of God and worship Him for eternity. And my prayer and my hope as a dad is that I will look over and I will see my girls standing beside me. Because you see, being a parent is a lot of things. It's hard, it's beautiful, it's frustrating beyond belief. Amen? <laughs> but it's also encouraging. And it's a million other little things. But more than anything, more than anything, being a parent is an enormous responsibility. You know, when young couples who come to me and they say that they're expecting a child, 
and they're excited and I'm excited too and they say to me, they say, Luke, we're really nervous. I look at them and in the most loving way I can tell them, you are not nervous enough. (laughs) You are not nervous enough. It should drive you to pray. It should drive you to pursue Christ wholeheartedly, to pour yourself into this new reality with all of the strength you can muster. And at the end of the day, to submit yourself completely to Christ, knowing that He alone is our strength, He's our courage, He's our boldness to face the challenge of this crazy venture called parenthood. And so what now? I mean, what does this mean for you? For those of you who don't have kids, maybe for those of you who will never have kids, you're thinking, boy, this is a waste of my time. It means that you should get some of your perspective on discipleship through the lens of what it means to raise a godly family. It means that you should see those people around you who don't yet know Christ and feel the same weight of responsibility to share the good news of Jesus with them as I do when I look into my daughter's eyes. And I know it's tough to share your faith. I get it. I mean, I've been there. I know we don't like thinking about hell, and we don't like feeling guilty about that. We don't like thinking about the separation. We certainly don't like feeling that we're going to make people feel awkward, or we're going to feel awkward. But what if I told you tonight, what if I told you that, that telling people about the good news is way more than just about hell? Way more. What if you began to understand and believe that you actually held the secret to a life that had meaning and purpose, a a, a life, a secret to life that was grace and peace and hope and true, unbridled love in the most pure form? What if you truly began to believe that you know, that you know the person that's at the center of everything is Jesus Christ? What would you do then? Would you hold that secret to yourself? Would you lock away that key, that hope and that love just for you? Or would you share it? Because catch this, our faith is more than just a hope of a future glory, my friends. It's the formula to a life that's worth living now. You see, because if faith is just about the future, if faith is just about someday avoiding hell and getting to heaven, I mean, I might as well maximize the days I have here and then convert at the last possible second. But that's not it. That's not what faith is. And as I look into the eyes of my children, I see kids who need to be raised to know Christ. And so I would encourage you tonight to begin to see the people around you your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students, your workout buddies, your patients, your clients, and every single person that you encounter in the same way that you begin to see children who don't, do not yet know Christ. You see, we've believed this lie, this lie that somehow is insidious and it's worked its way into our hearts that we can't disciple someone until we've reached some ambiguous place of status. 
Maybe it's that you don't think that you've read your Bible enough, or maybe, maybe you think you don't go to church enough, or maybe you don't think that you pray enough. Maybe you, you think that you don't avoid sin enough. And can I just encourage you tonight? Can I just lift you up a little bit and tell you that you're absolutely right? You can't. I can't. We can't do enough good to avoid the bad. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And you know what? All we have to do is introduce them. That's it. That's where we start. And we need to stop believing the lie that, let me say it this way, you need to stop and I need to stop believing the lie that you and I are the actual representation of God. You see, the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God. We are to be made like Christ. You are not Him. I am not Him. We need to stop carrying this burden around that we need to be the spokesperson and the ambassador for Christ. And all that weight just rests on our shoulders. Do you know that the fact that you are imperfect is actually a good thing? Now, I don't mean to press into that and to like celebrate that. But think about it. The fact that you are imperfect actually gives other imperfect people hope that they can follow the same God that you follow. I don't know about you, but if one of my buddies asks me to go for a run or go work out, and he's like me, I want to. You know, maybe he's a little bit more jacked. Maybe he's a little bit faster. I mean, I just spent two weeks with Kenyans, okay? They can run. You know, I'm much more inclined to follow that than I am if some jacked out, roided out muscle man, unless it's The Rock, asks me to work out. Because I relate. I relate to that person that's like me, that's maybe a little bit further along, and that's exactly what it is. But then the reality sets in that discipleship is actually more than just introducing God to people. And this is where we come off the rails a little bit. Discipleship is the process of walking alongside someone as they grow up. It's like my daughters. It wasn't enough to just read them a Bible story when they're two and hope that not only can they read, but they fall in love with Jesus and everything's going to work out. And that's the last thing I ever had to do. I mean, it's a lifelong journey of walking alongside them as they learn to trust God, as they learn to read, as they learn to pee on the potty, as they learn to do all these things that come naturally to most of you. But I want you to know that it's a messy process. It's a messy process. Raising children... It's difficult. If you would have told me that at this stage of my life I would talk about poop and pee and puke and bodily rashes and functions more than I talk about anything else to the woman that I love, I would have thought you were crazy. I would have thought you were crazy. But that's just the way it is. Because raising kids is messy. Raising kids is a process of discipleship. And so tonight I want to close by, by touching on an uncomfortable subject. 
discipline. And I want you to hear this message tonight that discipleship is discipline. To expect to participate in discipleship without discipline is a fool's game. It's a lie that the enemy wants us to believe that we can just have it our way. That we can just do whatever we want and it's going to be okay. That we can engage in is we can engage with it as little or as much as we want and it's all going to work out. Because one of the things that being a parent and being part of a family has taught me is that discipline is an essential piece of raising a child. It's essential. And when I say discipline, I want you to hear I don't mean punishment. You see, these words are often used interchangeably, but it's not correct. In fact, I, I've heard the argument, and I, in fact, I used to be one of these people, but I've, I've grown as I, I've gotten older. Many Christian parents defend physical punishment on the basis of verses such as Proverbs 13.24. You know which one I'm talking about? Whoever spares the rod hates the child. You see, but in, pl- in applying that verse, I've come to realize that it's important to consider how the rod was actually used in the pastoral culture of the Old Testament. You see, the rod was an instrument to guide ignorant sheep, not a means of beating them into submission. There's a big difference. And then again, listen to how that verse actually concludes. It says this, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. You see, discipline, true discipline, is both high in action and in content. And what I mean by that is that parents who pour into their children by word and by deed, by not only speaking what the rules are, but showing what the rules are, and teaching them of how to be successful, is the greatest expression of what parenting is supposed to be. It's all about being a real person to your child while also holding them accountable for what your family holds as important. In our house, there's a little painting that Morgan did with our girls, and it has our three family rules on it. And they decorated it, and it's really cute. But it says, in our house, we be respectful, we be generous, and we be cooperative. Cooperative's a hard one for a three-year-old. And any time that my daughter departs from one of those, sometimes we physically lead her back and we show her and we talk about our family rules. And this is no different than what discipleship actually looks like in the church. You see, a, di- a disciple is, is a person who accepts ideas or values and leads or guides others to accept them as well. And discipline's a major part of this. Hebrews 12.11 tells us this about discipline. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Friends, we're called to hold each other accountable, to set a standard and then remind one another when that standard is breached. You see, we, we think about discipline in this overly negative way today in our culture, in a time where we value individuality and subjective truth above all else, I mean, who are you to tell me how to live? That is just saturated in our culture, to do whatever we please and to push back vehemently against those that would impart their beliefs on us. But I'm here to tell you tonight that that is exactly 
exactly what we're supposed to do with those that are a part of God's family. We have a set of rules. We have a measure to live by, and it's called the Bible. God has made himself known, and we're to prop ourselves up with it. We're to measure everything by it, and we're to hold one another accountable to it. And can I just say really quickly that if you have somebody in your life, maybe right now, or maybe you have, or maybe you will in the future, that you feel is like holding your feet to the fire, and it makes you feel like they don't love you, and they're judging you, can I just maybe throw this out there that it might be exactly the opposite? It might be because they love you so much that they are willing to make you and them feel terribly awkward so that you are reminded of the standard to which you agreed when you said you were part of God's family. I don't discipline my daughters because I hate them. In fact, I discipline them because I adore them. I would literally die. I mean, people would say that before I, would, they were, before I was a dad. They would say, man, I would die for my kids. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. But man, like when I look into the eyes of my girls, like, I mean, I would do anything for them. I used to say I would kill anyone for them, but uh, maybe don't test me. <laughs> but no, I mean, I look at them and I love them and I would, I would truly, I would give my life for them. If I knew that my death would mean their life, I would do it. And so I want to encourage you tonight to begin to look at the people around you in that same way. Because you might not have children of your own. Maybe you never will. But I would encourage you to let yourself begin to see the act of discipleship through what a godly family should look like. A long, messy process that includes discipline, but immense love. It's the standard I try and live by, and it's the prayer that I have that I would begin to see everyone around me with the same love and catch this, the motivation to act as I do with my own children. And finally, I'll encourage you with this, is to remember that we're all in this weird family together. We are. We are in this weird family together. So let's strive to care for one another and be willing to put ourselves in those awkward situations. Because in Hebrews it teaches us that if we do that, we can consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I thank you, God, that, that you have given me children and the immense responsibility that I feel to parent them with my wife. God, I pray for each person in this place gathered that they would begin to see those around them in the same way that I see my kids. And God, would you increase even my view of my children? And God, help me to see the people around me in that way also. God, that we would begin to feel the weight and the responsibility of discipleship to care and to love for those around us, but to not leave that love without action, God, but instead to call each other to a higher standard and to walk along that messy journey together. And God, I pray for those that have children, for those that are about to have children, and those that would someday have children by any 
through any means. God, I pray that, that their lives would resemble discipleship. I pray a blessing over them. I think of particularly Shay and Regan as Shay is just a few weeks away from her due date. Father, we pray a blessing over her. We just pray, God, that you would move mightily in, in her life and her body. God, we continue to pray for this precious child of yours that you are growing inside of her. God, would it be healthy? And would the delivery go well, God? And would you just, just pour your blessings upon this family as they endeavor to begin raising this child in love and to disciple them? Give them wisdom and discernment in the coming days. And Father, would each one of us pull the truth from the reality of what a godly family should look like. We love you, Father. Would you be with us tonight? Amen. Tyler?